As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, LLS, will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or on your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony, and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Fancast to get you started here as we work our way into phase two. I don't know the answer if phase two feels a whole lot different to you than it, uh, it did when we were stuck in phase one, but uh, I did learn, I learned one thing about phase two, that it involves small groups returning to the ice for some, and it involves Okanagan road trips for others. Yeah, I'm doing this podcast, Vancast, coming to you live from <laughs> Summerland, British Columbia, beautiful Summerland. Look, I've been up here for four days now I came up on Friday and took a couple days off like I genuinely took vacation uh, which was crazy and you know it was really nice like my uncle is just back from California he's a classic snowbird and he has a place in Summerland and he's not able to move in because of the 14-day quarantine uh, until the 18th so uh, there was a gap there that I was able to take advantage of come up do some errands for my uncle help him provision um, you know, he's across the lake in Naramata and, you know, where he's rented a place to quarantine. And so we were able to take uh, take this spot, spend some time on the lake. I've been in the hot tub drinking wine, 
Um, we hit we hit some wineries, man. Like wineries were some there were some wineries doing outdoor tastings. Uh, so we we did that. I've I've bought twenty four bottles, so I'm well stocked. Uh, now <laughs> I'll be drinking my way out of this vacation for a while. And look, it was great. Like just really nice to spend some time outside the city to do something that felt really normal. And obviously, you know, there've there's been a fair bit of success flattening the curve up here. There are currently no active cases in the interior region. Um, you know, seeing as I was coming from the city, I was still taking precautions. Like I've been the only person in a mask in every store I've been in. Um, but you know, I'm kind of used to being the craziest person, uh, the most hypochondriac person, um, you know, on the, in every store I've been in basically since this all went down. So it wasn't too big a departure for me, but look, it was just lovely. Like just a great part of the world. Love the Okanagan. Great to get back. Have a lot of memories of visiting here as a child and, um, you know, it's uh, one advantage, I guess, uh, you know, of this new sort of breakdown in, in office centrism or rink centrism, as it, as it is for you and I, J-Pat, um, you know, is that I can just sort of pick up and go and, and work from wherever I am. And um, at least for the first time since the world shut down in mid-March, uh, I availed myself of that opportunity and it was absolutely wonderful. Please, please, please tell me that you're doing your part of the podcast here from the hot tub with a glass of wine in hand. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to bring my electronics out, but <laughs> now that you've said it, I feel shame. Well, we'll get into some hockey topics here because uh, there are some things to actually dive into, uh, but I had to... Not that I was trying to out you. I mean, the magic of technology allows you to do a podcast from wherever, yeah. but uh, y you sent me photos of your haul from one of the many uh, roadside fruit stands in the region there. <laughs> yeah, well, you called me while I was at the fruit stand. <laughs> I so I, I mentioned to you that I was there, and then I figured, you know, J-Pat will want to know that I finally, after many years of searching, found cranberry jam. Oh, good. Okay. That that was my big mission, man. I'm not kidding. I've been on a 15-year mission to find cranberry jam. It doesn't make sense. Like, cranberry sauce is ubiquitous, but no one makes cranberry jam. And it's driven me mental because cranberry as a flavor goes very well with habanero-based peppers. And I've always wanted to have a turkey burger that I could just put cranberry jam on with some hot sauce and just, like, leave it there. Like, perfect. No, Nothing else needed. Maybe a tomato. And finally, after years of searching and toiling, I located this weekend on the cliffs of Summerland, Cranberry Jam. We rejoice with you. <laughs> now let's wow, get this in. is the bougiest hockey podcast of all time. <laughs> well, hey, a couple of weeks ago, we were trying to be the best smelling hockey podcast uh, on the market. Now we want to get into uh, uh, Cranberry jams and salsas and whatever else but hey let's get into this because um news of the day is jacob markstrom is the uh, vancouver chapter of the professional hockey writers association nominee for the bill masterton which every year is awarded to the player uh who best exemplifies sportsmanship perseverance and dedication to hockey it's the second year in a row for markstrom and while he dealt with difficult difficult circumstances that were well documented i would have to think this was a, a pretty easy decision for the chapter hundred percent. And, you know, I think we were pretty dead set on Markstrom being the Masterton uh, by midseason. I know that I voted for him for Masterton when I did the midseason ballot, uh, which was just a write-in vote. There was no sort of chapter coordination. 
And, you know, I think he's enormously deserving of the award. Like when he was the nominee from Vancouver last year and, and granted I wasn't part of the chapter then, I think it was mostly a reflection of what he's overcome in terms of, you know, finding a new level as a everyday NHL starter, considering his circuitous route to the NHL and on and on. And this year, I do think there's a totally different case uh, just based on, you know, the way that he conducted himself, carried himself uh, through family tragedy, through a contract year, through injury, uh, how he's developed into uh, the Cappy, de Tutti Cappy in terms of his presence off the ice. Uh, certainly, you know, the quiet community work he does uh, away from the ice. And then also, of course, you know, holding it down while being under siege constantly uh, in the Canucks net. I think he was, you know, and I know there's some debate on this because there's a variety of analytics folks, analytics inclined hockey writers who are beginning to support Elias Pettersson for the Hart Trophy and sort of wondering why Jacob Markstrom is so widely considered in Vancouver to be the club's MVP when, you know, according to a variety of metrics and especially because of how well he draws penalties, you know, Pedersen is a standout for the number and numbers inclined as, as, as a heart trophy candidate. Um, I don't know that he'll be on my ballot and I don't think there's many people higher on Elias than I am, but you know, for me anyway, when you consider how this Canucks team played how much they needed Markstrom and what happened to their club when he left with injury. I mean, for me, I think Markstrom is the MVP. Um, perhaps I'm part of the problem <laughs> in terms of <laughs> making that sort of a widespread opinion in Vancouver. But for me, Markstrom's the team MVP. And, you know, when you consider all of that, I know, you know, I think he's, a, first of all, he's a very deserving nominee. And I actually think he should be a finalist. Like, I think he's got a real case to be a finalist and should be a finalist. The only reason that he may not be is, you know, most of the other players who've overcome things have really spoke openly and at length about them. And Markstrom has too, to some extent, but Markstrom is guarded, generally speaking, and very private. And so I don't think anyone's really done the, you know, all-in, uh, super resonant, heartstring-pulling Markstrom feature, uh, especially as it, you know involves the passing of his father and you know as a result I'm not sure that the hockey world is as up on what Markstrom has battled through this past season as they are with a variety of other players uh, you know namely a guy like Shea Theodore uh, and his sort of overcoming um, cancer over the past summer so you know it'll be interesting to see but for me Markstrom should be a finalist you know it's every year I kind of have the same feeling that it's unfortunate in some ways that people are forced to pick one of these stories over the others, right? Because in, in some ways then it diminishes, like Jay Bomeister's life looked like it was coming to an end on the bench that night in Anaheim. Yes. Bobby Ryan and the Canucks know it well because they were on the receiving end of that hat trick, which kind of capped an amazing comeback from yes. the depths. You know, like all of these stories, all these guys, they, a ton of them play through hardships that we don't know an awful lot about. And to say one guy, you know, persevered more than another, in some ways, I almost feel like it, it should stay at the team level. But I, I get that, mm -hmm. you know, an award is there and, and will be presented. But look, I'm with you. I mean, 
you know, Markstrom chose to keep his struggles private uh, when he took that leave, first of all, and then when he had to go back to Sweden the second time uh, to, you know, lay his father to rest and, and, you know, didn't just play through it, but seemingly took his game to another level, uh, whether he was fueled by that, uh, whatever the case. I mean, he does check off a ton of the boxes, but so too do so many of the other candidates who are now finalists for this award. Absolutely. And, you know, I, the Bobby Ryan one's a, a good one, too. And, you know, that moment in Ottawa, I wasn't on that trip, so that wasn't top of mind for me. But, you know, that was a big moment for sure. And, you know, there's a lot of guys, I think, around the league who are deserving. Like I saw Mark Latestu, he's been battling a pretty significant, you know, illness all season, um, was the nominee out of Winnipeg, for example. And that's a that's a tremendous story of perseverance as well. And, and you're right, sort of grading them versus one another the way we do the heart or the calder um does seem a little ghoulish you know when you step back and think about it uh so you know anyway i i markstrom congratulations to him on a, on a tremendous season he was a very deserving pick um from the vancouver chapter and you know continues to be a, a remarkable story so here's the plan then. You know, there's one winner. One winner gets the Masterton, and the other finalists all get a crate of cranberry jam. <laughs> well, it's hard to find. I don't know how you're going to find it in such bulk, JPAC. Okay, maybe Boy. maybe not a crate yeah. then. You're you're in charge of sourcing. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Just big bottles. They each get one big <laughs> bottle then. Got to start. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver here. So uh, we'll, we'll start <laughs> with enough. bottles as uh, a consolation prize. Hey, the other story <laughs> involving the Canucks in the last 24 hours or so, uh, Farhan was the first to report, I think he had a chat with Jim Benning yesterday, that the Canucks have submitted this long list. I know you and Harm kind of were, you know, throwing darts and trying to project uh, what the expanded roster would look like. The Canucks uh, send a long list to the league. They won't all ultimately be on uh, the roster that moves forward here, but... You know, the news of the day was that, you know, Jim Benning seemed really encouraged by the progress that Michael Furland is making to the point that Furland apparently is going to skate in Winnipeg at the Jets facility. And in the words of the general manager that, you know, if he continues to progress, that yes, absolutely, Michael Furland is part of the Canucks plans right now. Now, look, we've gone down this road with him a handful of times in his career, uh, saying he's healthy and being healthy are two different things at this stage now, uh, given his track record. But, you know, it, it does present sort of a, a conundrum, I suppose. Uh, if he is healthy, it gives the Canucks options. But I know, you know, you and Harm put Furlan and Levo sort of in their own separate category in your piece because at that point, nobody knew. Uh, how does it change the dynamic now if Michael Furlan is an option for the Vancouver Canucks? Yeah, uh, you know, it's going to be really tough to sketch out what the bottom six looks like right like let's just as a mental exercise go through we know the top six is Pearson Horvat Besser Toffoli Miller Patterson right there's not not a lot of suspense there we know in some combination that's going to be the Canucks top six now when you get to the bottom six and you add Furland into the mix and you assume that Travis Green will not want to take out either Sutter or Beagle against a potent Minnesota wild penalty kill. You know, once you add that, you know, it's like a LSAT game logic puzzle. Like once you, once you assign that fixed variable, the bottom six becomes really hard to sketch out because you've got sort of four wingers. You'd think the Canucks would want in their lineup. Like Tyler Mott arguably is their best penalty killer. 
Um, you know, I know, I know he's not as important because he's not a center as as Beagle or Sutter systematically. But for me, the on ice results are clear. The Canucks are at their best killing penalties with Tyler Mott in the lineup. So, you know, I don't think you want to lose him. Uh, certainly, you don't want to lose Jake Vertanen. You need that speed in the bottom six, and you need that offensive pop. Antoine Roussel, you'd think, was pretty vitally important, especially in a in a tough playoff series. Adam Gaudet is a surefire with a bullet, has to be in the lineup. Again, they need that offensive pop. Plus, the guy outworks everybody all the time. And then, you know, and then you add Furland, right? Like, that's seven names right there. And I don't think it's easy to decide which one of those players comes out, right? Like, that's a tough sort of uh, nut to crack, as it were, especially because, again, I don't think you lose either Sutter or Beagle. So, you know, it's not like you can roll with, like, a Sutter, Vertanen, Roussel fourth line. Like, as good as that might sound, you know, uh, I do think that it's challenging uh, to actually roll with that considering the threat posed by Minnesota 5-on-4. Right. And I think, too, if you think back to the last, you know, even five games before the season was halted, like Antoine Roussel seemed to have found something in his game. Like, I think he had played, sure. you know, he had played all season trying to recapture uh, his legs coming off the knee injury. And I, I think we had seen and, you know, that line. I mean, at the time it was McEwen on the right side. Uh, Zach McEwen is not going to mm-hmm. be in their top 12 when they, they restart here. But, you know, I'm with you. Like, Godet's the third line center. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But you also have to insulate him, and, you know, there's some chemistry there. There's an understanding. Like, Furland and Gaudet have, not only have they not played together, I don't even know if they know each other. You know what I mean? Like, Furland's been around this, <laughs> yeah. he's been around this team so little uh, in reality that the idea of just all of a sudden throwing him on the wing of a rookie at play-in or playoff time, you know, I know that there's a camp there and there'll be these two exhibition games. Uh, but I, I still think, like, there's currency in... You know what a veteran guy like Roussel has done to work with Gaudet and just form some chemistry there that probably gives Roussel a little bit of a leg up. You're right. I mean, Vertanen's not coming out of the lineup for Michael Furland. And so then it becomes that fourth line. And, and, and I think the other thing too, Tom, is, you know, what is Michael Furland? Like on paper, we know what Michael Furland is supposed to be, but with the season that he's had and the injuries that he's had, like it's just it, you can't just sit here and proclaim Michael Furland is back. Like there's just no way of knowing. We went down that road in December when he returned and he got through an entire game, and people thought, okay, that's a big step. And then the first period of the next game, you know, that's the last we saw him in a Canuck uniform. We know that he barely lasted uh, a period in Utica in his one uh, quick attempt at a return in February. So you know, it, it's fine. And like, look, I'm really happy to hear that he's making progress. I mean, this is all positive for Michael Furland the person, but to get from here today where we're hearing stories that he's progressing to Michael Furland being ready to play play in style hockey uh, in the span of what, 60 days from now, less than 60 days. You know, I still think there's a ton of ground to cover. hundred percent. And the, you know, test is going to be making it through a game, right? Like making it through game situation, symptom free. And so I think those exhibition games are going to be key for him, but look, here's the thing about Michael Furland, right? And, and I like what you said about Roussel because very quietly, the last 20 games of the season, and I'm pretty sure on this, I do need to recheck it, but I was paying close attention to a split toward the end of the season where, or toward the cancellation of the season, where over like a 20-game stretch, Antoine Roussel had 
been the Canucks leader in shot attempt differential, which to me was a sign that, you know, this guy was putting together a, a stretch more like his career baseline. Like Roussel's always been a really good play driving forward. It hadn't shown up yet this season, which I think is understandable considering the severity of his surgery. And I was sort of waiting to see, like, is this guy going to find it again? Or at his age, is he not? And it looked to me over a relatively large sample, like he'd figured that part of it out. And and I think Canucks fans had, it hadn't noticed it in part because, you know, Godet, I think Godet, whether it was Godet, Vertanen, or, um, or McEwen, there were younger players, like players that fans are more inclined to be like, yay, young guys right. yep. uh, who were scoring on his line. So, so he wasn't given the credit for it necessarily. And I also think he had a couple moments where, you know, the team was chasing a lead and he was on late and fans got upset about it. You know what I mean? So it sort of obscured how well he'd actually been playing. And, you know, Roussel's crucial because of that. But when you think about what Furlan can be, like what you think about what Furlan generally is, like he's a bona fide second line NHL caliber forward when he's healthy and you know that's a very valuable piece for this team if he can make it back and that's not even sort of including the physical assertiveness that he can bring at his best Uh, you know we'll sort of see what this looks like Uh, I mean I think it's I think it's going to be incumbent on the Canucks to find out you know if he can play in those game situations and be symptom free thereafter uh, before you throw him into a playoff game, just because based on the track record since his late October injury in that fight with Kyle Clifford, you know, he hasn't he hasn't reliably made it through games. And I do think in a short five game qualifying round that poses a higher than usual degree of risk, especially when you consider how crowded uh, the Canucks forward group is. And that's even with us assuming that Levo's not going to be ready to come back, which I don't think is definitive, even if it's not looking good. Right. I think the update there was that, you know, it's taken a lot longer than anybody had hoped. And and look, two to three months at the time, boy, that seemed ambitious for a broken kneecap. Like that was the time frame the Canucks gave right away. And, you know, kneecaps aren't supposed to break. <laughs> like, you know, two to three months for a full recovery to be an yeah. elite level athlete and to be able to skate and pivot and stop and everything else like you know, two to three just always seemed like it was going to be a, a bit of a reach and so uh this added time we thought maybe would work in josh levo's favor but it sounds like you know it's still a bit of a, a struggle for him so who knows uh, you know again phase two it's voluntary uh we've been told there aren't many canucks here in town so the canucks haven't even opened rogers arena yet and we'll see what happens uh word was that and i mentioned like furland is apparently going to skate in Winnipeg. Uh, there was some talk that you know non-Canuck players who reside in Vancouver uh, may force the Canucks to open Rogers Arena. Uh, that that may be the demand is not so much that uh, you know the few Canucks that are still here, but there's enough guys in the NHL uh, that are here during the stoppage that that may be the reason why the Canucks end up opening Rogers Arena here in Phase Two. I saw a video of like Milan Lucic and Chris Tanev were skating together somewhere. Um, yesterday. So there are guys back on the ice, but they're not back at the Raj just yet. It, it seems on one hand to kind of be crazy to even talk about, you know, these exhibition games that they're going to play before the play-in. But at the same time, when we talk about a guy like Furlan Tom, like he has to play those games. 
And yet, if you're Travis Green, if Furlan's in your lineup and you're, you you need to see him, it means that somebody, and we just ran through our idea of a top 12, it means that somebody in that forward group isn't playing. Like, it's going to be interesting to me to see sort of how these teams approach these exhibition games. You'd think they'd be all in on their starting lineups, but in the Canucks case, I think you have to have a little bit of experimentation because you have to see if Furlan can get through those games first before you would even consider playing him in the play-in. Yeah, you're going to need your full house uh, when that comes around. So, uh, I mean, no question. I think that's going to be vitally important is uh, is seeing how he responds. And, you know, hopefully for him as a person and, and obviously for the Canucks uh, from a hockey perspective, uh, you know, he's able to restart his career. I mean, he's a fun player to watch when he's healthy and, and playing well. Like he's physically works hard. Um, you know, he's just a guy a guy you like like I I actually have enjoyed dealing with him uh you know he's a family guy he's overcome a lot so I, I do hope for the best for him here for a variety of reasons most most of them human reasons and we'll, we'll sort of see but I do think you know it's going to be incumbent to see if he how he responds to game action we've seen him be in this state where he's skating where he's a full participant in high intensity practices where he jumps through you know every hoop on the protocol symptom free and he gets into that game and that's sort of where things get a little tricky and and we'll have to sort of see how he responds here but hopefully for him uh you know it all works out yeah and just you know again if he's playing in the exhibition game somebody comes out but remember like you need all those guys want to play because they haven't played in forever so this this idea of like if Roussel only got one exhibition game you know or if Mott comes out for a game so that Furlan can get two you know, it, it is going to impact the readiness of some of those other guys if Furland ultimately, you know, gives it a go and they determine that he either can't or they're just not prepared to play him. So yeah, I'm sure Travis Green's got a plan here and he's still got time to work through it. But I, I'm kind of curious to see how they're going to go about uh, handling the exhibition games. If they're all in on, you know, does Markstrom play all periods of both of these exhibition games so that he's up and running? Or do you want Thatcher Demko to get at least a period just so that he can knock some rust off in the event that you had? I know nobody wants to hear or think of the Canucks having to go past Markstrom on their depth chart in these play-ins. But, you know, how vital is it for Thatcher Demko to get a period or two just to kind of work his game back up to, to game readiness? You know, one other dynamic here that's important to note, I think, is like, it's not like those two exhibition games will be like the exhibition games we see in September where guys have only had a four day training camp. You know what I'm saying? And like really training camp is the preseason two. In some ways, those are glorified scrimmages. Um, the three weeks of training camp is going to be sort of fascinating because by the time you get to an exhibition game, you know, these guys are not going to be struggling out there like you sometimes see early in the preseason. Like, I'd expect a level of sharpness and pace well above that which we've become used to from exhibition hockey at the NHL level. And the other thing I'm really fascinated to see is what do you think our life's going to be like, J-Pat, during a three-week training camp in which we're probably not even allowed in the building? Right, and I've I've tried to wrap my head around that uh, and come at it from a bunch of different angles, and our life has changed. And look, it's not about us, I get that, but it is our lives and our livelihood, so we're going to have to figure out uh, how we go about getting access to tell some of these stories. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we've done a bunch of Zoom calls. I think that's probably the new reality. You know, and that's frustrating on a level because playoffs are the best time of the year. And, you know, sure. maybe this is me stretching it for 
um, an example's sake, but like just think post game. If somebody coughs up a puck in overtime, that if you're the Chris Campoli, um, hate to single him out, but you know if a guy coughs up a puck and it leads to an overtime winner, like usually he'd get ten minutes to calm down. And then, you know, we in the media would get a chance to talk to him and sort of work through what happened, the emotions, the struggles of, you know, that play. You know, are we going to get access to these guys? Will teams still prop those guys up? Can they shield them now? Uh, you know, who's deciding who's going to be available post game? And I just don't think you're going to get that sort of same visceral uh, emotional response over Zoom no. that you would if it was face-to-face in a locker room or even at a podium, you know, in the immediate aftermath of a game. So I do think that, you know, there, there's going to be a tangible takeaway there in the way that obviously these playoff games are covered and sort of the, the, the responses that we get from the participants that are involved. Yeah, you're also not going to get the one-on-one, you know, like certain guys are able to build relationships with various players, right? That's sort of that's sort of something that you're able to do, or uh, you know, I like to think I'm able to do. And there's other guys who have their guys on the beat, right? And you'll get a more frank response from those guys because you've built that rapport. And especially if you're able to get the quote in away from the scrum, and and that's another sort of element that we're likely going to lose because uh, I I'm not sure that the Canucks are going to be like, here you do a Zoom call, and now here's your one on one, right? And now here's your one on one with Coos, and now here's your one, you know, like no <laughs> yeah. chance. Two hours, of, um, two so, hours have gone by, and the guy's just you know working on his his sixth <laughs> Zoom call. Yeah, totally, totally. Here's here's your one on one with Ken Campbell of the Hockey News. Um, like it's just not, it's just no, no chance. So, um, you know, it's going to be a big adjustment for us. And I'm really curious to see, like, are we really going to do zoom calls after a training camp session? You know what I mean? And like, think about, think about camp, right? Like think about covering training camp. Training camp is not an exciting time of year, right? Like for me anyway, typically speaking, it was a little more exciting this year. Cause Elias Pettersson was doing some like alpha shit every game, <laughs> every day. But, like, for the most part, training camp is a grind, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to just stick around, build relationships, talk to these guys. I might not talk to some of them for months. Like, just make sure that they know who I am, on and on, right? Like, it's now covering three weeks of that, J-Pat, um, that, or, or two and a half weeks of that. I mean, that's going to be a real challenge, like, scraping the bottom of the barrel. I, I mean, two and a half weeks gives you time to write a lengthy profile on every single roster player basically you know like it's an insane amount of time and if we're not in the rink like you know if we're watching on some stream the Canucks fans are also able to watch you know like what are we even I mean there's going to be like Tash 1944 is going to beat batch to the line combos anyway it's going to be a totally new paradigm in terms of sort of what we're able to glean what we're able to you know understand um, we're only going to see what the camera's pointing at. Like, it's not like I'm going to be able to be like, oh, this guy left the ice after, you know, what happened there, right? Like, we, we're not going to have that if we're not in the building. It's going to be a really big challenge, I think, to provide value to our audience and, and something we're going to, you know, need to need to adjust. Like, it's going to be a really significant adjustment for us, I think. And, uh, and one I'm curious to sort of battle through, I guess. No, these are all uh, the things that uh, have to be ironed out and, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not expecting that media will be allowed in the building, in the bubble, uh, when the games are played. 
uh, if the games are played. But uh, training camp, again, there's still a lot to be discussed there and figured out uh, whether it's going to be on this side of the border or if the Canucks have to you know, take their show on the road for training camp. So uh, I would think that in the next couple of weeks, we, we're going to have to get some decisions on that. I mean, the Canucks need to know uh, you know, where their hub is, and from there they would then accordingly make a decision on, you know, training camp, whether it's at Rogers Arena or if they've got to find somewhere else. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that in the next couple of weeks here uh, we get some decisions. Uh, let's finish up as we like to do here on the VanCast. Uh, the ball is in your court. You, you, you've got the serve this time. It's time for another round of Name That Canuck. <laughs> All right, J-Pat, clue number one. You ready? I am, yes. In 2003, the Vancouver Canucks traded Todd Warner to the Philadelphia Flyers for future considerations. Those future considerations weren't exercised. As a result, a highly productive trade tree for the Canucks, a trade tree that includes a Selkie winner, a 50-goal scorer, and another first-line center ended. This trade tree began, by the way, with this player. Name that Canuck. Again with the player. Oh, jeez. Um, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> How far back did the trade tree go? I could go way back. <laughs> it could go way back. So, um, I'm trying to process all the information, but as far as the timeline goes, the player that started it. Um... Well, identify the trade tree. That's the key. I've forgotten it already. There was a 50-goal scorer in there. <laughs> a 50-goal scorer, a Selkie winner, and another first-line center. Okay. Um... I, I, honestly, I, my head's just swimming as far as trying to figure out <laughs> where the trade tree began. Um, I, I don't know. Cam Neely. All right. Next clue. Thank you. Complete this list of four-time. So these are these are complete this list of four-time thirty-goal scorers in Vancouver Canucks history. So these are guys who scored 30 goals in a season and did it four times in the history of the Vancouver Canucks franchise. Tony Tanti, Stan Smeal, Trevor Linden, Daniel Sedin, Marcus Nasland, and this guy. 30 goal scorers. Um, oh, I used to be good at this game, and now I'm not so good at this game. That's what I'm finding out here as we go along. Um... <laughs> 30 goal scorers. Did you say Stan Smeal? I did. No, okay. Uh, I'll give you the list again. Smeal, Tanti, Linden, D. Sedin, Nasland, and this guy. Um, Don Lever. A good guess, but no. Okay. All right, final clue. By the early 80s, the Canucks were ahead of the curve, right, in terms of identifying European talent. Obviously, Ivan Halinka being sort of the, the key figure there. They actually made their first draft pick out of Europe in 1978, but in 1981, in the eighth round of the draft, 157th overall, they selected this player, 
And this player was the first ever draft pick out of Finland in the history of the Vancouver Canucks franchise. Oh, uh, um, I want to say Petri Skrikko, but... That is correct. Oh, okay. Good. Thank you for stopping me. <laughs> Thank you for talking. Yeah, don't overthink it. Thank, yeah. Don't overthink <laughs> it. It's Petri Skrikko. I was going to talk myself out of it. Okay. <laughs> I know. Right. I was like, no, no, I made this clue to be easy. Good. Um, so Skrikko, Skrikko was dealt for the draft pick used to select Mike Pekka. Mike Pekka was selected was was traded for Alexander McGilney. McGilney was traded for Brendan Morrison. Brendan Morrison uh, was traded along with Pedersen, and Pedersen, in a trade with uh, the Arizona Coyotes, brought back Todd Warner, who went to Philadelphia in 2003 for future considerations never exercised. See, I'm glad you laid that out, but that was just a lot to digest in the moment. So for sure, I'm not feeling for so sure. bad. All right. No, no, no. I thought the Selkie winner was the giveaway. I thought that would ID Pekka, and then you'd at least have, like, a good guess at uh, a trade in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Right, but when I hear Selkie and Canucks, and I'm thinking Kessler, and I knew that he hadn't been traded, obviously, uh, that pick hadn't, right. you know, but that I got hung up on Ryan Kessler. So, uh, there we go. That was my excuse, at least, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, just For sure. Before we run here, uh, just want to promote a couple of other podcasts that are here on the athletic site if you're looking for more hockey content these days ian cole of the colorado avalanche spends the full 60 with craig Custance this week at the athletic and chris thorburn is with barrett jackman and the athletics jeremy rutherford on we went blues again you can find that at the athletic check out our comments section for each podcast here at the athletic app and don't forget to rate and subscribe the vancast on apple if you click on the show url theathletic.com slash the vancast you'll get 40 percent off your subscription all right, Drancer, good stuff. Safe travels. So we'll reconvene later in Thank the week. You, sir. And, uh, uh, you know, save some of that jam. Don't consume it all at once. Hopefully you... <laughs> you know. I will save it for a delightful turkey burger with habanero spice on it. I'm very excited. Sounds like a plan. There you go. That is uh, <laughs> the latest Vancast here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.